Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, it's almost always the case. Unlike yesterday, I am back in my little 2006 Jetta Diesel TDI, making my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, bringing you episode 170 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, yesterday was kind of cool, folks. I, I worked from home because I had somebody coming to uh, bring us a new dryer. And... Uh, same time since I was home, I had this interview a couple weeks ago with the Fort Worth Star Telegram. They asked if they could send somebody out with a video camera and do a video interview for their website. And I did a video interview yesterday on modern survivalism and the way we're living. And I think it came out pretty well. And uh, is survivalism getting some attention? I think it might be. There is going to be a cover story in which I'll be featured, and the show will be featured on the uh, the Sunday paper for the Fort Worth Star, which has a circulation of about three-quarters of a million, I believe, is their total circulation rate. Um, so, you know, front-page story on a three-quarter million circulation paper, that's uh, it's pretty decent for survivalism. And, and as they were asking me these questions yesterday, Yesterday, they said, you know, how did you get into this? How did you get started in this? And I had to, you know, say, well, it wasn't really so much getting started as it was coming back. And I related just a little bit about my childhood. Most of it, you know, the childhood part that I spent in rural Pennsylvania in the coal region. And just the way that we lived back in, you know, the 80s, which isn't that long ago. And as I did that, I thought, you know what, that's tomorrow's show topic. I've talked about my past and my background. I've talked about it at a personal level uh, one time very, very uh, at length, just so you guys could understand who I was. And I've talked about it anecdotally along the way, like, okay, I do this today, but this is how I learned it. I thought it would be interesting if I took you on a drive-by tour of the years of 1985 to 1990, in the coal region of Pennsylvania, my high school years right up until I joined the Army and left. And not make the story about me, make the story about what it was like there. And as I tell that story today, I want you to remember one very important thing. Some of the things you'll hear me say will sound like, you know, that's quite nostalgic, but you would think they were coming out of the mouth of someone who's 55 or 65 years old. That the freedom that we had there couldn't possibly have existed just, what, 25 years ago? Folks, I'm 36 years old. I'm 36 years old. And the story that I'm going to tell you today is going to sound more like the 40s and 50s than the 80s. Before I do that, though, I, I want to uh, go ahead and knock out the house cleaning, as I always do. Again, we have the Member Support Brigade. If you like this show, if you want to support this show, if you think you get 25 cents of value uh, from every episode of the show, consider joining the Member Support Brigade and get content and material that's available only to Member Support Brigade members, and you'll know you're supporting the show at $5 a month or $50 a year, your choice. Sign up online. Membership is instant. If you want to pay by cash, check, or money, order, you can do that as well. There's a form to download at 
mail to us. Obviously, you won't have instant accounts set up if you choose to do that. Uh, Wilderness Ways, uh, big uh, Dirt Time 09 event out in the San Bernardino, San Bernardino area, California. I will be there lecturing with about a dozen other experts on various primitive survival skills. It's a week-long workshop. It is an amazing opportunity to learn everything from survival woodcraft to bow making and even about survival gardening for me. Region 5, big bug out, camp out, get together happening down near Goldthwaite, Texas. And come on, come all, you're invited. It is just a bunch of guys and hopefully some gals getting together, hanging out, out in uh, the sticks, so to speak, camping, cooking some barbecue, having a good time, and building and developing our community. Uh, Dan Tanner has gone a long way toward putting this together. Uh, if you uh, if you go to the forum and get some information about it, be sure to tell Dan thanks for the effort he's put out. Um, I never expected that much effort to come from, so thank you, Dan. Uh, also, I'm going to Doing an audio version of the uh, the novel Lights Out by David Crawford. It is coming slowly with all the other things that are going on, but I am making progress. You can get a preview of the prologue in the first two chapters by filling out a simple form at the website link in the podcast notes. For those of you telling me that the preview could do with some editing, absolutely know that. Those were a raw, rough cut, first swing at it. That's why this thing is taking so long, folks. For one hour of reading, I have to spend about five to six seven hours of effort to end up with one hour of, uh, of finished recording, plus the additional hour to read it uh, the first time. So it's about an 8 to 1, 9 to 1 ratio right now. So let's get on to today's topic. And what was 1985, 1986, 1987, those years, 88, 89, 90, what were they like? Living, you know, kind of really between two towns where my parents lived and my grandparents lived, of Pottsville and Minersville, Pennsylvania. You know, and by the name Minersville, I think it's not hard to figure out what the town was founded on and what people did there uh, was coal mining. And by the time I was there, there was a lot of coal mining still going on, but a lot of it had already been done. Uh, The mines had been, you know, done shaft mining and something called strip mining, which just absolutely rapes the ground when they strip mine. It's just basically digging a giant hole. I mean, a hole that looks like a nuclear bomb went off or a a giant asteroid impact happened. It's a crater that you stand on one end and you look across to the other end, and on some of them, they're so big, you know, you, it'd be a long rifle shot, if not maybe a, only a sniper's only rifle shot across the rim of these these gaping chasm holes that they would dig. And the, the, the problem for a town that's been a mining town where most of the mining has been done is you live like it's the Great Depression in 1985. And that's the best way I could describe this. And I'd say it's not quite that bad. We lived a little bit better than they did during the Depression. My grandfather told me this all the time as a kid. You don't know how lucky you are. You don't know how good you have it. But he also said, we ain't got money like them highfalutin people down there in Philadelphia. All right? So it was a different time. It was a different way to grow up. And if I could take you through a typical year, let's start at the, the slowest time of the year when when not a lot was going on. You know, February, March, you know, early April when it was still cold. And, I mean, it would get really, really cold. I feel like maybe the global warming people had at least one thing right. It seems like those winters uh, were colder 
than I've experienced winters in Pennsylvania when we've gone back to visit, especially in those February, in that February month and beginning of March, and we'd get huge amounts of snow, but we would already be getting ready for the garden to come in the summertime. My grandfather would have me uh, putting together little pots. We have all these little plastic pots that he'd saved up over the years. Nothing matched. Everything was different. We had these little wooden trays that he built out of scrap wood. We put all these little pots in these little trays, fill them up with topsoil, and into them we would put mostly peppers, tomatoes, cauliflower, broccoli, and cabbage would be the plants that we would start early. We'd start the broccoli, the cauliflower, the cabbage earlier than the peppers and tomatoes because they could handle some of the frost. They just couldn't handle being buried under two feet of snow. And we would get all the little plants started and going and, and put out in a sunny window. And we would get them up and, 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 and you know going. And then eventually we would take them outside when there, at least the snow was off the ground or most of the snow was off the ground. Maybe not off the ground, but it you know, stopped falling. And uh, we crank up this this lid on this old coal frame, which was made of these this huge block and tackle that he'd gotten from an old abandoned mine shack. This block and tackle was probably enough to lift an engine out of a car, and here we're lifting a lead pane uh, old glass window with it. But the damn thing was so heavy, it probably needed something that big. And it was on this huge steel trellis that it was mounted, and underneath the trellis was the cold frame dug into the ground. And a cold frame, for those that don't know, folks, it's like a little mini greenhouse, basically, a little thing built out of the ground. So you put your plants down there, and they won't freeze. And then every day you can open the lid a little bit, maybe a little bit more, a little bit more as you get, so you start hardening your plants off, and yet at night you can close it completely down so that your plants don't freeze and die when they're young. But on that trellis grew several huge old grapevines. And these were Concord grapes that were made from everything from jelly to wine to grape juice uh, later in the year when we would harvest. But these vines were so old they were bigger around at the base than my forearms are today. I don't know how many grapevines you've ever seen that were that big, but the story went back that the original person who built the house planted those vines somewhere in the 1890s. So at that point they were getting pretty close to being 100 years old and they were still producing and they grew up over this huge steel trellis that uh, that, that these, these vines were on. So spring would start to come, and the first thing that we would really start to do to get away from cabin fever is we'd start trout fishing. That was the first kind of season that would really begin the year and announce an end to winter. And we'd go out and we'd trout fish it every stream and brook that we could uh, we could get to. And I love this time of year. I'd go out and fish with my uncles. I'd go out and fish with my dad. I'd go out and fish with my friends. The thing was, until I got old enough to get a car, this was something I could only do if somebody would take me because there were no streams that were, you know, walking distance. There was one that I could kind of get to, and uh, but it only really had native brook trout in it. We didn't keep those fish. We knew they were a, kind of a, 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 a wild population without a lot of stability if people started taking fish fish out of that stream uh, no one stocked it so we didn't we didn't take those fish we'd, we'd fish the bigger streams and the bigger creeks the small rivers for trout and uh, we'd eat a lot of trout right away but we'd also put a lot of it away and it would be put away in uh, two primary different ways one would be to uh, to freeze it obviously and the other way we uh, had an old smokehouse built out of an old uh, uh, what do you call it old uh, refrigerator where we would cold smoke trout and we would smoke trout like crazy through trout season uh, so that it could be stored 
a longer term without actually being frozen because we had this uh, this deep root cellar uh, that was really cool uh, even in the hot of the summer and we could store fish by hanging it down there in the root cellar once it had been smoked about that time too we'd start to put the first crops in the ground we'd put that cabbage that uh, you know the broccoli the cauliflower the things that could handle the still early freezes into the ground and by now the pepper plants and the tomato plants would be starting to get some size on them they'd have more leaves and about this time it would not be so cold anymore and I would start kind of running around on my own once again and uh, just to our back was some land that separated the house uh, from the high school and it was probably 30-40 acres of wooded land that somebody owned but nobody really knew or who cared who it was and it was hills and you know trails and everything a boy could want I'd spend a lot of time there then I could cut through this little uh, wooded area between the two roads that were in Minersville, the high road and the low road and those are still really the only two roads in actually Jonestown which is believe it or not a suburb of Minersville which is just ridiculous if you knew the area but I'd cut through there and wave to the neighbors and there's this old dirt road it was all black and nasty uh, that would lead back to the mountain Pine Hill Mountain and uh, the reason it was black and nasty is it was all coal slush and I, I can't even describe coal slush to you if you've never seen it but it's a byproduct of strip mining and coal breaking and uh, it's a mixture of rock and a little bit of coal and it's black and it gets you dirtier than a stack of dirty tires could so you try to stay out of that stuff but I'd walk that road until I'd get to the part that they hadn't destroyed and then I'd go up the uh, the rocky part of the mountains and I'd hike up there and I'd spend you know uh, you know any day that I couldn't ta- talk somebody into taking me fishing I'd take my 22 and a pocket full of shells and I'd go up there and I'd find interesting things to shoot at and I don't mean I would kill things because we didn't shoot anything to kill it unless it was either to protect a crop or because we were going to eat it. So I'd do things like go up there and shoot pine cones and some of the places where people drank I'd shoot beer bottles and or cans or things like that. But mostly it was just taking a walk up the mountain and I'd either take the long walk up the mountain or the short walk on the land behind the property and either way I'd almost always take my rifle with me. And I was honing my rifle skills and to me it was just fun. It was play. So we're talking about as a young man with 50 rounds of 22s and a rifle with a scope on it on his back running around waving to the neighbors and no one called the police folks no one thought oh my god what's going on here and I was 14, 15, 16 years old is what I'm talking about here and again folks I'm only 36 this is 1986, 1987 1988 this is not 1945 this is not right after World War II this is 20 some years ago in a little place called Jonestown, Pennsylvania. And as the summer would come, we'd put the bigger crops into the ground, and we'd start planting the peppers and the tomatoes, and we'd plant the plants that went in the ground as seeds, the cucumbers, and we grew just about everything, folks. Corn, we'd grow dill, we grew onions, we grew garlic. I would go out and I would dig the beds one at a time for my grandfather. He'd have me out there with a a piece of string, and a couple sticks and he'd line out a line for me and I'd cut that line straight and we'd have grass growing between our beds and I didn't know anything about raised beds and we didn't either we grew it in the ground like a mini farm and that's what it was it was about a quarter acre that we would have cultivated by the time the height of the season had come and as we'd move through the summer uh, the trout streams would get warmer and they weren't the best for trout fishing and there was nobody stocking fish anymore and 
we'd moved to fishing for mostly bass and catfish. And there were some bigger rivers that we'd go fishing for smallmouth bass, but again, I had to be taken to those. I didn't have a car yet. But I'll tell you about the cars we had in just a second. So there were all these little ponds. Some of them were from old strip mine operations. Some of them were farm ponds and stock tanks. But there were all these little ponds all over the place within a couple, three, four miles of where I lived. So I'd get on a bicycle. I'd go to them to go fishing. And, you know, bait was either worms that we picked because it was raining or if we ran out of worms, it was one piece of bread. I'll tell you about the piece of bread in a second. So I'd load up my bike, and on my bike, I would carry two or three fishing poles, and I'd carry a small tackle kit that I guess today most people would look at since it's small and compact, and they'd call it a survival fishing kit. And I might carry something along with me, such as an old onion bag or an old burlap sack, which would fold up. And I'd go out to these lakes and these ponds, and I'd start fishing. And if I had worms, I'd use those. But I would also always try to catch some small bluegill, perch, brim, you call them what you want to. And I could either do that with small pieces of worm or tiny pieces of bread if I didn't have any worms. And the way I'd catch them, I wouldn't waste a fishing rod that could be used for bass or catfish on these fish. Take a little piece of string and a stick that you'd find handy. And uh, tie on like a number 12, a very small hook, and either a little bread ball or a little piece of worm, and I'd start pulling perch out and throwing them in that burlap sack. You see, carrying a minnow bucket on a bicycle is difficult, but carrying a burlap sack with you, pretty easy. And you'd put that burlap sack in the water with a rock in the bottom to hold it down, and that would keep your uh, bait alive. That way, when you were done, any of them you didn't use, you could let them go. And I'd rig up a couple rods with these uh, little sunfish, and I'd catch bass. I'd bring bass home, I'd bring channel catfish home, and again, we would eat some, we would smoke some. But we were providing for ourselves. Let me ask you, are you hearing survival skills as I tell you this story? As the summer progressed, the tomato plants would start to get over a foot tall and they'd start to look like they need a little bit of support. So my grandfather would hand me a hatchet and say, we need tomato steaks. So I'd go out into the uh, the surrounding land and I'd look for saplings that uh, would make good tomato steaks. And he'd say, I want big ones. These are going to be big tomatoes. And I'd be looking to cut steaks that would be about 7 foot to 8 foot long, so I could put them a foot into the ground, so I'm at least 6 feet out of the ground. And they were big enough, but he would always tell me, you could have found some bigger ones, couldn't you? And I think we'd grow about 18 tomato plants back then, all the same variety, so we could save the seeds. We didn't buy tomato seeds. Hearing any survival skills? And we'd take old rags and old cloths, and we'd cut them up to make ties for the tomatoes, and I'd go put all the steaks in the ground, and I would stake the tomatoes up the pole. Every day I would go down once they started growing really fast and see if any of them needed any more tying up, if any of the uh, sucker vines needed to be cut off, and I'd keep them going. And I'd end up finding out that my grandfather was right. They could have been bigger because the tomato plants would grow well over six feet tall and start to come back down the other side. And I just kept doing these things, and I never thought about it. It didn't seem like, you know, they were chores, but yet they were fun. Even fishing, on some level, was a chore. Because I was always asked when I got home, what did you bring back? Did you bring back any meat today? You don't have to work yet, boy. You should be bringing some food home. And as we would progress towards the fall, the garden would hit full swing. 
and we would hit that harvest time. And this would be a time for preserving food and giving food away at the same time. And I'm talking, Pennsylvania, fall comes pretty early. We're talking September here that this would, would begin. And we would have everything just coming to full harvest. And I would go down and I would pick every day. And I'd pick so many beans and so many peppers and so many cucumbers. And I'll tell you a little bit about what we did with them. My grandmother would take cucumbers of various sizes and she made three distinctively different type of pickles. She had this huge stone crock that she'd make these very large cucumbers into what you would call a crock pickle. These were kind of like a dill pickle, but they were nowhere near as sour as a true dill pickle. They were kind of a midway between a sweet and a dill pickle, and these things were amazing. And you know what? They would store all winter long, but unlike the other pickles I would have to wait months for, these would be ready in three to four days. And we'd take this huge stone crock and this huge stone lid, and she'd mix up the stuff that she, the brine that she would pour on them. We'd put them in there. She'd cover them. We'd put this huge lid on, and we'd throw another rock on it to hold it down. And that crock would be a place you could go grab a pickle all through winter. She would make another batch of pickles into its typical smaller pickles into dill pickles in jars that she would can like anything else. And then she would take some of the pickles and slice them up thin and make what we would call a bread and butter pickle, which was more of a sweet pickle. And we'd have all three of those pickles just from our cucumbers, plus the fresh cucumbers that we would eat in salads and just sliced all summer long. Tomatoes, tomatoes were given away by the bagful. Absolutely by the backflow. It was part of my chores that time of year to go give away vegetables to the, the community members that were basically too old to take care of their garden anymore. You hearing any survival skills? Continuing from there, we would do things like my grandmother would make lots of what she called chili sauce or barbecue sauce. And I don't really think it was either, but it was used to cook an awful lot of stuff, including deer barbecue, later in the year. And that would be the ripe tomatoes. And she made a lot of tomato sauce as well that we would put up, put away down in the cellar, canned and jarred. So we would chop the peppers, and mostly what we would do with peppers is simply bag them and freeze them because they didn't need to be blanched. We would freeze some of our beans, we would freeze some of our, our snap peas, and then we would jar and can some of our beans and snap peas as well so that we had a mixture of what was available to make it through winter. And there were all the other crops we would take care of, but then something wonderful would happen. Right before the first frost, it would be time, if it's on the vine, if it's on the plant, cut it. Get everything. Leave nothing behind. We're going to lose everything when the big frost comes. It is time for the end of the garden this year. And I would basically just bring bushel baskets of everything that was growing in the garden. And they would have broccoli florets, the last of the cauliflower, a couple heads of cabbage that we had put in late so that there was some to do this with, uh, carrots, sell everything. Every vegetable you can think of that gardeners typically grow. My grandmother would chop it all up in big chunks and put away probably 40 or 50 quarts of something we call chow chow relish. And I've seen chow chow relish of various shapes and forms, and I don't think there is an official way to make it, but I always love my grandmother's thick version versus the more finely chopped versions that I found from other people. And this was simply a way to take this last of the harvest and preserve it. But it made an amazing, amazing 
condiment. It made an amazing thing to eat. Uh, we'd have many a dinner going through the winter where your vegetables were a big ladle of this chow chow. It was called and no one ever complained about it. Not once. It was that good. At the same time this was going on, we would be making another type of transition from the time of the year where we did mostly fishing to the time of the year where we would start hunting. And September was dove season. And we would go out and shoot a limit of doves just about every day. And we would debreast them and put them away in the freezer. We'd save one bag of just the hearts for a special treat one night when we would saute a huge uh, frying pan of dove hearts and eat them with toothpicks. From there, we would move into small game and archery season. The priority was taking a deer with the bow. You'd go out, you'd take your deer with the bow, and then you would small game hunt while the other members of the family or the hunting party would continue to try to get their deer with the bow. So that way you were still gathering food, and we would be hunting for things like grouse, squirrels, pheasants, and rabbits. And what you would do is you would set up times with your hunting partner who was still hunting with his bow, and at certain times of the day you would slowly stalk from one area through to where he was hunting to see if you could slowly move a deer through. And you wanted to do this very slowly, because obviously with a bow you're not going to be shooting a running deer. And eventually that time would end and the deer season would end and there would still be small game to be gathered and the folks that had not taken a deer would join you and you'd go out and you'd go on larger small game hunting parties again, hunting the farms more now uh, for grout, for uh, pheasants and rabbits. From there we would move into this, this you know cooler time of the year. The leaves are falling from the trees. We'd get close to Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in Pennsylvania for a family that hunts is, it's a special time, usually for the men in the family and the young, you know, men, young men as well. Most of the families would go somewhere up county, they would call it, up in the northern part of the state to go bear hunting. Now, the way you'd go bear hunting is you'd take Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of Thanksgiving week off, because that's when bear season was. And you'd leave Sunday, and you'd go to your little hunting camp somewhere, and it was usually a little remote location. Generally, you'd sleep in a travel trailer or some busted-up old cabin out in the middle of nowhere that had been in the family for a long time, and often nobody except members of your family and very close friends knew where that location was. Are you hearing any survival skills yet? And you'd stay up there, and this would be a man's time. And other people would do this in their deer camp time. They would take that time off uh, in deer season rather than bear season. Because bear season, you're generally not highly successful in bear season. You'd have, you know, 100,000 hunters out and 2,000 bears taken. So your odds of success were about 2%. And I never did take a black bear in those times, folks. But they're some of my most cherished memories. Because you would get away. You'd hang out together. You'd eat breakfast together. You'd spend the entire day hunting. Very little time together when you were hunting. Mostly you'd still hunt or stand hunt. And uh, you'd see a lot of deer. But it wasn't deer season yet, so you couldn't shoot them. You come back in the evening. You'd cook dinner. You'd go by the uh, bear check station and see what other people had actually taken. And after those three days, Wednesday evening, you'd pack up and you'd take the long drive back home to your family so you could spend Thanksgiving with them. No one worked on Thanksgiving. No one. If you didn't get what you needed before Thanksgiving Day in that town, you weren't getting it. Even the convenience stores were closed. Black Friday wasn't about shopping for us. We didn't have the money to go do all that, folks. 
So what we would do on Black Friday is everybody would just sit around the house, and the men would clean their guns that they had just taken hunting, and they would be getting ready for something even bigger that would start that Monday. That Monday would be the first day of rifle season for deer. And through that weekend, you spent a lot of time with your family. A lot of family members would come in that maybe you didn't see at other times of the year. So we'd have that great Thanksgiving holiday experience. And then on Monday morning, not a kid, at least not a male child, would be in the school. So nobody went to school. because, And until this day, until today, folks, first day of deer season is a school holiday in the coal region of Pennsylvania. Down here in Texas, the kids get Thursday and Friday off for Thanksgiving. Up there, they get Thursday, Friday, and Monday off. Because if you had school, they're going to be empty anyway. Because all the boys are hunting, some of the girls are hunting, and the girls that aren't hunting, you keep them home so that you have an extra deer tag to use so that you can gather more deer, you know, for the winter. Because you need the meat. And we'd go deer hunting, and hopefully we'd put more deer in the freezer. And what do we do with all this deer meat? Some of it would just get cut up, deboned, steaks, chops, hamburger meat, typical thing you do with deer. We'd usually make one entire deer into jerky, because I didn't know about biltong yet. We'd usually make one deer into sausage. We would mix, we'd go down to the uh, butcher, and we would get a bunch of pork, and we'd mix one-third pork to two-thirds deer meat with sage, pepper, salt, and coriander. And then we had our own little sausage sausage stuffer, we'd get the casings, and we'd crank the stuffer down, and we would stuff the sausage. We'd make almost an entire deer into sausage. We had a friend that was a butcher, and he would make bologna out of some of the deer meat for us. But I skipped a few things. You know, in that fall harvest, we'd be picking all those grapes. We'd be making wine out of them. We'd make grape juice for the kids, because we weren't allowed to have wine. Maybe a sip at the Thanksgiving dinner table. And uh, when you got older, 15, 16, maybe they'd even give you a glass at the Thanksgiving dinner table and nobody got upset about it. No one called the police. No one cared. Through that springtime that I mentioned, you know what else we were doing besides just trout fishing? We, I'd, and I'd walk in those mountains with that 22. I'd usually take a sack with me and I'd come back with a sack full of blueberries or blackberries or wild strawberries. My grandmother would make jellies out of them. She would make them into cakes. She would make them into pies. And there would be days when the whole family would just go out and forage through the spring and the summer, depending on what berry was available. Coming back to the winter, though, the end of that deer season, hopefully you had a lot of meat put away. Because now it was going to get very, very cold. Very, very cold. And the snow was going to fly. And you'd have that February and March again. It was really, you know, where the term cabin fever was used a lot because you were so used to being outside, so used to being involved, and it was just so cold and there just wasn't much you could do except be home and be together and be glad that you'd worked so hard through the spring, the summer, and fall, and you actually had a blast doing it, that you didn't have to worry about feeding yourself because there was a full chest freezer and there was a full root cellar and there was plenty of food and it was time to dig out those dirty old pots again fill them up with dirt and start planting seeds folks that's how I grew up from 1985 through 1990 till I joined the army and left that little town 
And I wish I could tell you that that town is still the same. There's a lot of that preserved there. But a lot of that's been lost. And again, you have to keep in mind, I'm not a 50-year-old man. I'm a 36-year-old man. This is not that long ago. Now, let me tell you what people called themselves. They called themselves coal miners. They called themselves carpenters. They called themselves farmers. They called themselves blue-collar. I mean, a few of them would call themselves steel workers because there was a little bit of that around. They called themselves grandparents and parents, brothers and sisters. They called themselves community members. They called themselves police officers. They called themselves master and they called themselves student. And there were trades that people would learn and that's where that would come from. There'd be a master and there'd be an apprentice for certain trades. They called themselves mechanics. But none of them, none of them, referred to themselves as a survivalist. But did you hear any survival skills there? Can you see how people that live that way, if the shit would have hit the fan in 1986, it would have mattered. You know, how long would we have been able to run that, that old, tired backup generator for the chest freezer? But we would have been okay. And this is where the attitude from my father came. And I didn't really understand it. Because this is just the way we lived. If we just turned all the lights out, half the people will lay down and die. My dad used to tell me that. I didn't get it then. He wasn't talking about, you know, the apocalypse. He wasn't talking about some of the scenarios we run through today with rioting in in the streets. What he was saying is even here, there's people that have become too soft. And there won't be rioting here because the people that aren't soft won't stand for it. And they'll try to help other people. But there are people that have become so soft to reality because things have been made too easy for them that if you just shut the lights off, they would quit. They wouldn't riot. They'd just wait for somebody to come. They'd wait for somebody to come save them. They'd wait for somebody to bring them food. They'd wait for somebody to come make a fire to keep them warm if it was cold. I thought my dad was crazy. Then I saw Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, and I saw people that sat and waited for someone to come and feed them, that sat and waited for someone to come and save them. And I realized that wisdom... And I realized that the man was right. There were people that, the hell with rioting, and the hell with trying to do something, I'll just wait. But in that town, there were very few of those people, because if you were waiting, no one brought you anything, even when times were good. And the times that I just described, to some people, especially if you pull a 16-year-old internet native, as they call that generation today, never has known a time without a microwave, a DVD player, an MP3 player, and the internet, would think that that is a horrific experience. They were the best years of my life. And they're not that long ago. And I think maybe, maybe this is a little bit of why survivalists are negatively stereotyped. You'd say, Jack, how in the heck could that type of lifestyle be seen as negative? It's not. It wasn't. But let me ask you a question. If you were that person in 1986 living in Jonestown, Pennsylvania with your garden 
and your smokehouse and your fishing and your hunting and your foraging and your gathering and using the land around you and you didn't call yourself a survivalist then who was a survivalist to you to that person to that generation who was a survivalist when everybody was a survivalist who got the label the crazy guy digging a hole in the middle of the woods that he thought was going to save him if the nuclear bombs went off. He was a survivalist. I think that some of the legacy thinking is why we have this stereotypical view of survivalists today. Because at one time everybody was a survivalist, but nobody called himself a survivalist. And I know this is a different show. This is different than what I usually do. This is a trip through the past. It almost sounds like a trip through 1930s. It was a trip through the 1980s. And we didn't have a lot of money, but we never felt poor. I never thought of myself as poor. You know, if you looked at the cars we drove, we must have been poor. But I didn't see it as poor. I saw it with pride. We weren't stupid. We weren't buying these brand new cars that nobody could afford on credit. A car on credit? Are you crazy? I remember my grandfather was so proud. He bought a 1974, I think it was, Chevy Monza, a little white Monza. He bought that car in 85. I made a hell of a deal, he told me. I got that car for $450. And I remember thinking, wow, my grandfather's pretty smart. He bought a car for $450. Cars are selling for like $9,000 today, brand new. And that car looks like a pretty nice car. The Chevy Monza was a piece of crap. But it took everybody where they needed to go. They had that one car between he and my grandmother. They, whenever they needed it, they got in it and they went. It ran. Never had a problem with it. You know, they drove it until it blew up. And then they got another one. And then I remember how proud I was. One day I was up in the attic in our shanty. We had a shanty, folks. <laughs> I'll let you look up what a shanty is. So, I'm up there and, I, and I'm going through some boxes. And one of my you know, uncles, as he grew up, was kind of a gearhead. And he had a bunch of old hot rod magazines from the 70s. And I found this 1974 hot rod magazine with the brand new Chevy Monza fully loaded advertised for $3,999 in 1974. Brand new. And I looked out in the driveway and there was one of them and my grandfather got it for $450. My grandfather was the smartest man in the world. Let me ask you how most teenagers would react if you brought home a car that you paid $450 for today. You're cheap. You're driving an old jalopy, right? Even if you adjust it for inflation, what if you brought home a $2,000 car today? What would most teenagers say? What was my first car? My first car was a 1975 Pontiac Grand Prix that I bought for $300. And I made most of the money, most of that $300, by on my little excursions all through these old mountains and old mining areas. There were all these abandoned you know, mining operations, and in them would be just these old generator motors just laying there, rusted. I mean, these things, and this is not theft, folks. These things had been laying there for 50 years, and no one bothered because they were so heavy. And I would bring one home here and one home there, and I'd put them down in the cellar, and inside them was copper. So I'd take a pair of tin snips, I'd cut the ends off, I'd pull the wire out. I'd put all the frames on one side for scrap metal, and I'd put all the copper into uh, milk crates. 
And I, you know, once in a while, I'd say, Dad, I got enough. Can you take me to the scrapyard? And he'd take me to the scrapyard. I'd sell it. Copper wasn't three, four bucks a pound, folks. It was like 65 cents for clean copper. It took a long time to save up $300. But I bought my first car, and I paid for my six months of insurance the day after I bought it. That was the only way I was going to be able to have a car. And I drove that car all through high school. And it took me to my first job where I was a stock boy at the Economy Grocery Store. And it took me to my other seasonal job where I worked at the Cox Turkey Farm, cleaning up the room where they, you know, took care of the turkeys. That was our lifestyle. And it was a hard lifestyle in some ways, but in other ways it was a great lifestyle. And people say, well, when did you get into being a survivalist? When did you get into prepping? I didn't get into it. I was born into it. And then for about a 15-year period, I forgot my roots. I started pursuing the American dream. I had a high six-figure income. I was traveling all over the Northeast. I was meeting with consultants and and, and, and highfalutin people in New York City and Philadelphia and Baltimore and Boston. And then one day, 9-11 hit. And I didn't freak out. I didn't go out and get more guns than I already had because I never gave up the guns. I never really gave up hunting. I just didn't really pay attention anymore to the things that mattered. And when 9-11 hit, it wasn't so much that, oh my God, what could be next? I'll tell you what it was. It was this kind of thing can happen. And tonight, my wife is sitting at home wondering why the hell this happened. And I just had a phone conversation for her because she's so so caring, so loving. She's crying for these people. My son's scared, and I'm in Pittsburgh, living my highfalutin lifestyle, and I can't make them feel better. And this can't be this way anymore. And that's when I really changed my lifestyle, and I came back to what mattered. And then this show came because of a variety of reasons, because I was inspired by a family that could grow three tons of food on a tenth of an acre, that made me believe I could do it. Because I watched my portfolio wiped out during the dot-com bubble. When my gut told me, my gut told me back then, don't let this happen, Something's, don't let them tell you, oh, it'll come down a bit, get out, and I didn't do it. And I saw it coming again, and I didn't want it to happen to other people, so I started doing this show to tell other people about it. I started realizing we're in for some real hard times. And I'll tell you today, we're not done yet. This isn't the bottom. And I'm not even a believer that this is the end game. I think we'll have another inflationary bubble that'll look good, that'll have people singing and dancing after this one. But we're not done at the bottom yet. We have a long way to go. And a lot of stupidity to go. But the things that I'm doing today, that's something I got into. There's something that everybody simply did 25 years ago in a little cold town. And I promise you folks, there's places today, in 2009 in America, where people just live that way. And they don't call themselves survivalists. They just go, that's what you got to do. It gets cold in the wintertime. You know, nothing grows. You got to grow stuff in the summertime. You got to put it away. You don't do it, you won't have anything. You have to go to the store and buy it. And that's expensive. You need bait? Well, go out and catch it. Go out in the field, grab some grasshoppers. Go out at night, look for, for uh, night crawlers when it rains. Take a little bit of bait and use it to catch more bait. Make a net. You get out too late at night fishing, it's going to be a pain in the butt to walk home in the dark. There's no cell phone to call anybody. 
As long as you showed up by about 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning the next day, no one really worried. It came looking for you. Find a nice pine tree, go a little lean-to, put a fire together, sit there. You might as well leave your fishing rod in at night. Hang out for the evening, camp out, get up in the morning and go home. It's just the way we lived. We had plans, we had rally points, we had teams. Sure, it was so that we could do a more effective deer drive, but that infrastructure was in place without even thinking about it. If you went on a hunting trip with more than 25 people, you were required by law to keep a roster. You have to really think about where we are and how we got here. And I hope today's little trip through the late 80s, even though they might sound like the early 50s, will help you figure out how to do more of these things for yourself. This has been Jack Spierko taking you on a little trip through history today, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Spend